0: This episode is brought to you by BetterHelp. BetterHelp is an online counseling service that matches you with a licensed professional therapist. Today's guest is someone who has been really public about his experience with anxiety and how he manages it. Quentin Venney is a celebrated wellness expert and the author of the best selling memoir, Strong in the Broken Places. Welcome, Quentin.
1: Thank you so much for having me. How are you?
0: I'm good. I'm so happy to have you here. As we were discussing before we recorded, I discovered you on Periscope, which I assume many of my listeners don't even know what it is. Uh, was that five years ago?
1: Close. It was about three years ago. It was around the time that my book had come out.
0: Oh, you're right. Absolutely. So Periscope was like pre-Instagram and Facebook Live. And I discovered Quentin through Periscope when he was doing lives with Rebecca Baruki and danielle diamond who is a previous guest on the podcast and i just loved your vibe and the message that you were sharing and i've been following ever since and said okay let's get you on the show and discuss what you've got going on so tell us a little bit about who you are where you're from and what you do
1: well first of all thank you so much for following since Periscope, and you know for reaching out and and making this happen it's an honor and a privilege to be here so who i am i'm an author a public speaker I'm a gardener. But most importantly, I feel like I'm an advocate for humanity. I'm also a husband and a father of five. You know, I was born and raised in Baltimore uh, by a single mother. And right now, my biggest issue that I'm working toward is helping to fight this against food insecurity by promoting and creating initiatives that promote uh, sustainable vegetable gardening. I've also worked tirelessly on uh, initiatives in under-resourced communities and public school systems to make yoga and mindfulness accessible. That's my passion, and that's where I am today.
0: Actually, that brings up another point to another great connection we have, which is you've worked with Bent on Learning, which is a nonprofit organization that brings yoga and meditation into schools. I produced several events for them in the past years, and Ann and Jennifer are just Mm -hmm. two incredible women.
1: It's incredible how that whole thing came about because Anne found me on uh, on social media, and then ended up coming to my book launch party. Uh, and then after that, in 2018, her and I had the opportunity to work together. And I actually joined Benton Learning as their director of programs to help to expand their programs through the New York City school system. Uh, so she's been a, a dear friend of mine for quite some time. Jennifer's awesome, uh, as you mentioned. So yeah, it's been incredible.
0: They're an amazing organization, and I love those women so, so much. So let's dig into you and your backstory a bit. You were diagnosed with severe generalized anxiety disorder, panic disorder, and major depressive disorder, to name a few. Talk a bit about how those diagnoses came about. Did they all come about at once?
1: No, actually, um, when I was 14, I was diagnosed with acute anxiety and depression because I was having... Uh, episodes. I didn't realize that they were panic attacks back then, you know, they were just considered episodes and, you know, just difficulty breathing, heart palpitations, and the doctor back then told me that I needed to be on medication. Uh, At 14, he wanted to put me on Prozac, which was some kind of like behavioral drug back then. And the issue was like, I didn't have behavioral problems. The reality was I was growing up in one of the most dangerous cities in America. I had been shot at before my 12th birthday, seen a man overdose before my 13th. My father was addicted to heroin. And then I was going to schools that were dominated by people who didn't look like me. So I was subject to a lot of racism and a lot of prejudice. You know, while also living in communities that were subject to limited resources, you know, food deserts and poverty. You know, when you look at it and you take, having to exist in those two environments, I think anybody at a young age would have some mental health challenges. And so, you know, my mother denied and rejected the idea of placing me on medication. And for the next 12 years, I just tried to figure it out. You know, society had deemed my death and demise by 21 When I say society, I also mean like school guidance counselors and school teachers and people that we're supposed to look up to, you know, were the ones essentially devaluing my life and saying that I would never be successful Would be lucky if I graduated from high school or escaped jail, you know, by the time I was 18 or 21. So I experienced a lot in those years. And when I was 26, I started to experience those episodes again. But this time I had the wherewithal to figure out exactly what it was. Uh, But it didn't come easy. I spent like a month sleeping in my car in the emergency room parking lot because of these episodes. And I had my first panic attack when I was in the gym, you know, and I saw an ambulance like drive by me. and I thought I was going to die. I thought I was having a heart attack. Right. So that created a trauma in me that forced me to start to kind of take matters into my own hands. And one of the things that I did was sleep in the parking lot of the emergency room. That way, if I needed help, you know, it was contingent on my getting there and not them getting to me.
0: That's a lot to go through as a kid. And you acknowledge that instead of taking drugs, you figured it out on your own at a young age while still in school. What tools did you have accessible to you or did you explore on your own? And your mom making that decision saying you're not going on these drugs. What did you do?
1: Honestly, there were no real tools at my disposal, right? Because in in my community, especially during that time, we didn't talk about mental health issues. We didn't talk about our feelings. We didn't talk about anxiety. We really didn't even know what anxiety was, right? We didn't know what depression was. We knew what survival was and what it meant to survive with limited resources, with limited education, with limited money, with limited everything, right? So, you know, those 12 years was just 12 years of what it's like to be Black in this country, you know, and just having to survive. And that's what I did. And I think it was in that survival that also kind of forced my anxiety to show itself again once I got older, right? So it wasn't like there was anything specific that I did to help me with it. I just dealt with it. Like, we deal with everything else.
0: Yeah, which looking back, I'm sure is like, wow, I'm glad I survived that. How did I even do that? I mean, especially as a kid and to not feel like you had the support Of the school and the community to get you through that. But it sounds like you had a good mother.
1: My mother, she worked tirelessly, sometimes three jobs, just to make sure we had a roof over our head and food in my mouth, you know, and clothes on my back. I didn't always get what I wanted, but I always had what I needed. And, um, you know, she had dropped out of college when she got pregnant with me. So she didn't even get an opportunity to really explore her possibilities because she became a mom so young. And so, you know working with people with behavioral issues and mental health issues you know she knew the the detriment that the overprescriptive nature of western medicine could have on me and as a child she safeguarded me from it only for me to make the conscious decision as an adult to get on the medication which ultimately led to me having a two year addiction to
0: it so how did that come to be how did you decide to start taking prescriptions
1: for anyone who's ever experienced a severe panic attack and knows the fear and the helplessness that's associated with it you know as an adult i had two kids of my own i was running a successful personal training business and when my doctor said to me listen this pill you know will help you to mitigate that i was like hey give it to me right if if i can take this one pill every day and never feel that sense of fear again i'll take it and um what i didn't know Was that that medication was supposed to be taken in conjunction with other uh, treatment options, with therapy, uh, and it was supposed to be a short term thing. And I eventually stayed on it for two years.
0: When you say addiction, was that something you were aware of? Did a doctor call you out on that? Did a family member say something? What did that look like?
1: Uh, Addiction is the most pervasive disease that runs on both sides of my family. So I know exactly what it looks like uh, in other people. I didn't recognize it myself until I had attempted suicide twice and survived an accidental overdose and then realized that, you know the commonality for why I was feeling the way I was feeling was the fact that I was taking upwards of 18 milligrams of a benzodiazepine every single day when I was only prescribed to take two. And the fact that I was constantly able to get the amount of pills that I needed from my physician, you know, things just didn't make sense. When I hit that pervasive rock bottom and I went back to my doctor and said, listen, I think I have a problem. And he wanted to put me on something else as opposed to taking me off like I requested. Then I realized that my doctor wasn't my doctor. He was actually my dealer uh, and that I was on my own and I needed to figure this thing out another way. So it was like in that moment, I made the conscious decision to instead of living to die, I would fight to live.
0: Well, that is something. And to have that awareness while recognizing that you had an addiction and that it ran in your family and that you had to take matters into your own hands, you then set out on a journey to heal yourself. What did that look like? Clearly, it sounds like no drugs included. What did you do for yourself?
1: The first thing I did after I told my doctor to essentially go to hell and I sat in the car and cried for 45 minutes, I pulled myself together and was like, you know, I have to figure this out on my own. So I'm a big advocate of Google. Uh, And so I went and Googled a lot. I wanted to look into people who have cured themselves. I learned about like Dr. Sebi. You know, I started watching documentaries like Fat, Sick and Nearly Dead with Joe Cross, Crazy Sexy Cancer with Chris Carr. And I started to see that there was a commonality that no matter what the issue was, our diets and our behaviors and, you know, our belief system and the things that we're consuming on a day to day basis plays such a significant role. Right. And when you're like myself raised in a food desert, so you don't have access to foods with high nutritional levels. Uh, You don't talk about your feelings and your emotions. Right. So you you bottle everything in to see that other people who had the freedom to be human, right, in all of their complexities and to be vulnerable, which again, as a male and black male in this country, is often taught to us to mean weakness, right, to actually see this exposed and see this helping people. You know, Joe Cross was able to get rid of his autoimmune disease and lose weight just by going on a 60-day juice fast. Chris Carr, who was diagnosed with Uh, stage four incurable cancer was able to thrive by adopting a vegan diet and juicing and doing yoga and meditation, right? And I've always believed that, you know, no one is above or beneath me, right? So if they're able to do it with what they're struggling with, I have nothing to lose if I give it a shot myself, because everything else that I tried up to that point didn't work, right? Mm -hmm. And I'm a firm believer that if you don't have anything, then what more can you lose, uh, when you have nothing. So I gave it a shot and, you know, I was I was blessed and fortunate that it worked.
0: Do you remember what that first shot was? What was the first thing that you did for yourself?
1: The first thing I did for myself was I, I bought a juicer from Walmart after watching the two documentaries that I stated, as well as Food Incorporated. I went and bought a, um, a juicer from Walmart and I bought a ton of vegetables. I had no idea what juicing was about. I just saw on these documentaries that they were doing it. So for like the first few days, I was trying a multitude of recipes that all tasted horrible. It was interesting because like I was like a like a scientist. I would like juice broccoli and put it in a glass. Then I would juice like a lemon and put it in another glass. And then I would juice like kale and put it in another glass. And then I'm like literally in my kitchen with like 10 glasses of different fruits and vegetables, (laughs) trying to like pour them into a mug, tasting them to see which ones would work. Yeah. The challenge was appealing to me more than the taste of it, because everything tasted completely horrible. I had no idea what I was doing. (laughs) So that led me to doing additional research and figuring out like, okay, well, if if people are drinking these juices, they're making them palatable somehow. So what am I doing wrong? Uh, And then that's when I, I started YouTubing and looking at more juice recipes. And as a consequence, I ran across Tara Stiles who I didn't know at the time, and she was giving a a recipe for her juice. Uh, And the first thing she said was, oh, I got this juicer from my friend Chris Carr. And Chris Carr was my muse. She was, you know, crazy, sexy, cancer. So I was like, okay, so who is this Tara Styles person? Uh, And then I found out that Tara Styles was a yoga teacher, had her own style of yoga called Strava. And um, then I started practicing along with her. So now I'm like drinking juices that I love, and I'm practicing yoga, and I'm doing all of this without leaving the comfort of my home because sometimes that's what anxiety will push you to do. And from yoga, then I discovered uh, meditation, and those three modalities became what I call my trinity of wellness.
0: I love that so much. Chris is one of my total idols. That documentary is incredible. I've seen her speak several times and met her several times. And she's just a gem of a human being. Like just, wow, what she has done for herself and the platform that she has created to help people heal themselves is so huge. And it comes from such a genuine place. There's no like, I'm the expert and you guys are like the little peons. It's really, we're all in this together, which is so, so important in the wellness world. Support for this podcast and the following message comes from BetterHelp. That's Better H-E-L-P, an online counseling service that matches you with a licensed professional therapist. No matter where you are in the world, BetterHelp lets you schedule video and phone sessions with your therapist or even text them. Not only is it convenient, but it's also affordable. BetterHelp's therapists specialize in many different issues from depression, stress, anxiety, relationships, self-esteem, and more. I've talked with many guests about the importance of therapy, and it's something I believe everyone can benefit from. It's so valuable to be able to talk to someone with an informed outsider's perspective. With BetterHelp, you can have these conversations at your own pace through a secure online platform and with a counselor you love and who gets you. It's not self-help, it's BetterHelp. Made Visible listeners can get 10% off their first month of BetterHelp by visiting betterhelp.com backslash made visible. That's betterhelp.com slash made visible. And now back to the show. So you mentioned your trinity of wellness, yoga, meditation, and juicing. Were there other people in your life, family, friends, who were along for the ride with you? Were they supporting you?
1: The major support that I had during that time was from my mom. She was the person that brought me, uh, she purchased me my first yoga mat when I told her I wanted to do yoga. She didn't criticize it. She knew how bad my disorder was. She didn't know how bad my addiction was. Uh, She had come to my house on many occasions and I couldn't get out of the bed. You know, I locked myself in the bedroom. On the floor crying, there was a time where, you know, I was supposed to go to her house one night and I was too terrified to drive 30 minutes down the highway uh, to get to her home. And she had to, you know, end up driving to my house to stay with me because I was afraid to be home alone. So I didn't have much support at that time. It was really something that I needed to do for myself. Um, I was criticized a lot for my addiction, for the way it showed up. So I kept a lot of it to myself and kept it quiet.
0: And then what about when you made this shift? Were you public immediately and sharing that you were, you know, trying things out with your juicing and with meditation and yoga, because it sounds like these were not things that were really accessible and talked about in your community.
1: Absolutely not. And interestingly with me, I'm I'm a natural, like introverted, reclusive person. So the only time people knew about it, I mean, I had a a few of my closest friends that I call brothers who was aware of it, uh, not to the extent that the general public became aware of it. But yeah, I, I kept a lot of it just to myself. I was ashamed that I was an addict. Um, but once I started to, to find a, a bit more comfort in my story and I started writing about it, people started to inquire and ask questions. Generally, the people that were closest to me only knew or found out when like, they would have a cookout or a barbecue and I would come over and I'd have a, a half gallon of green juice while they're drinking, you know, cognac and Heineken. <laughs> you know, I'm sitting in the corner drinking my half gallon of green juice you know, and they were like, "What? what's going on? Like, you you seem to have lost your mind. You know, when I adopted a, a vegan diet and I would go to my family functions, you know, and I would bring my own food and I wouldn't eat the ribs from the grill and I wouldn't eat the grilled burgers. And I think that's when they started to see that there was a shift happening in my life. But, you know, outside of that, like I said, I've, I've always been pretty private.
0: How did you handle that criticism?
1: I've been criticized my entire life. It was just another day for me, you know. Um, growing up, I was too white in the black community because I spoke proper. I was told that I spoke white, right? Because I went to school, you know, with predominantly white kids. But then in schools, I was too black, you know, I was told that I was too urban and too hood and I was a thug and a derelict. So as far as my identity matching someone else's expectations, that was gone for me a long time ago. So I could deal with the criticisms and the critiques and the laughs and the jokes. It was nothing. Because at the end of the day, when it comes to health, we either pay for it now or we pay for it later. And I was investing in my health and it was making me feel better. And there was nothing that anyone could tell me or or say to me that would prevent me from feeling as incredible as I was.
0: Amen to that. I love hearing that so much because you realize that you had to take your health into your own matters. And no matter what anyone said, you knew what you needed to do for you.
1: Absolutely. I would often say like, you don't know what it's like to be hooked up to those machines in that hospital. You don't know what it's like to sleep in your car at 11 o'clock until six in the morning every night. You don't know what it's like to have these doctors poking and prodding and giving you all kinds of medications and treating you like a lab rat. It's like, you don't know what this feels like, right? So if you want to continue to live your life and do the things that you're doing, then so be it. But don't get mad at me when I choose not to.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Well, it's interesting because I watched some older videos that you have on YouTube of you and your son, Jaden, who's absolutely adorable, by the way. Thank you. Talking about juicing. And Mm -hmm. I wonder, how do you teach your children about healthy living and the way that you've chosen to live your life in order to manage your anxiety?
1: I lead by example. like I said, growing up, you know, my father was addicted to drugs, and so he wasn't a role model for me, right? And I've always felt like a son's father should be his superhero. And um, I watched my superhero, who should have been my superhero, fight a battle against a real-life kryptonite. And um, I wanted to make sure that my children never had to experience that. And so, you know, for me, it was like, I see so many people give kids options. Like, well, if you don't like it, then you can do this. There was no option. Like this is what we're gonna do. This is what we're gonna drink. This is what we're gonna eat. This is what's gonna happen, right? Like you're, you're three, four years old. But I, I found ways to make it fun. I found ways to make the foods palatable. You know, I found ways to engage them and involve them. You know, it wasn't that they had a choice that they could either eat the broccoli or eat the burger, right? You didn't have burgers as an option. So how can we figure out a way? Right, to make this broccoli the most interesting thing ever. And then it had gotten to a point where I would treat green juices and green smoothies as treats. You know, it's like, well, if you eat this, then you get this as a treat because it had honey in it or it had the fruit. So it had the sweetness, you know, instead of it being a green juice with like a bunch of celery, cucumber and kale. Right. I would throw in two or three additional apples to add that sweetness component to it. Right. So it was still more palatable. And, and they were, you know, it was really just shifting the mindset and changing the way they looked at food um, and what food did for their bodies.
0: And how do they respond to that?
1: they responded surprisingly well to it. They loved, especially Jaden, like he loved being involved in the process of juicing. You know, he loved the, just looking at it, right? Like seeing something solid go into a machine and then come out as a juice. It was like this pride that was associated with the fact that, you know, even though he wasn't the machine and he didn't do it, he did. It. You know, I was like, I made this come out as a juice. Like I took these veggies and made them into a juice. Like I did this. And and, and by doing it and introducing him at such a young age was incredible. I mean, and even today, my oldest son, who's 14, who loves to eat his junk food and his Doritos and all of those types of things, you know, is finding a, a level of appreciation with our home garden to see the way food grows and to taste the difference of how it is coming from your backyard as opposed to a package from a store is really starting to shift and change, you know, the way he's viewing food as well.
0: So, one of the big things that you talk about, especially on Instagram, is about gardening and its benefits for your mental health. Can you talk about how and why it's powerful for you?
1: Gardening, I guess for me, it was like my secret weapon that I wasn't aware that I had. When I was going through recovery and I was juicing and I'm doing yoga and I'm meditating. What I didn't factor in at the time was that I also had a small herb garden in my windowsill. I grew rosemary and basil and ginger root and grape tomatoes. And I don't even like tomatoes, but I grew them anyway, right? And um, it was such a beautiful experience. I would talk to my plants like they were—they were always there for me. And it was only after I got married, you know, and, and moved into a bigger space. And my wife and I decided, hey, let's get a raised bed and just try some stuff. I really realized how passionate I was about gardening. And then taking into account the fact that I was raised in a food desert, right? And I was raised going to supermarkets where the kale looked horrible. You know, all of the greens were like, they didn't look good. The leaves were like hanging over and limp and, you know, stems were browning and it it just didn't, it didn't look appetizing. And we never knew where our food came from. We didn't have a sustainable food source. So once I started like really getting back into gardening a few years ago, it was really eye opening, you know, just returning back to the earth from which I came, returning back to the land that my ancestors worked and never had a chance to own, you know, like just really having my hands in dirt and in mother nature uh, reminded me of my role in this world you know, of the role that we all as human beings play, the small role that we play in this ecosystem called life. And even looking at the scientific proof that suggests that certain soil types like getting into your skin actually helps the same way that an antidepressant does. It changes your mood. You know, yoga, I I often say that, you know, gardening is my yoga because it forces you to be mindful To find a level of appreciation for the things that are around you, like the same things that we're sowing seeds and we're cultivating and we're harvesting and we're growing is also nurturing our minds and our bodies, right? So I rely on those plants as much as those plants rely on me. There's a relationship there, right? Like I need them for my survival and they need me for theirs. It's just a beautiful practice uh, and thing to experience and to know that these things are, are not just nurturing me, but my wife and my children. Uh, and now working on initiatives that, you know, help to end this issue of food insecurity in this country, primarily in, in black and brown communities, is just, uh, it, it's beyond rewarding.
0: As you're saying, like the therapeutic aspect of it is so, so rewarding, as opposed to just like buying things in the grocery store, not knowing where it's coming from. And to your point, these food deserts, like these are not items that are looking good, or seem good, or feel safe to eat. Whereas something in your backyard, you know where it's coming from.
1: Absolutely, and to wake up, you know, like it, it was, it was interesting the other day. My wife and I we, we started growing these tomatoes from seed, and because our weather in, in Virginia right now has been like so up and down, like now it's like a hundred degrees every day, but like three months ago, still getting into in the fifties, right? So we were like having trouble trying to grow these tomatoes. And just the other day we looked and we had like three tomatoes growing and like to see the excitement on her face. I was excited because we grew it from seed, but I'm not gonna eat any of those tomatoes. <laughs> I can't stand tomatoes, you know? So like, I wasn't excited cause I'm like, we're finally gonna eat some tomatoes. But like she was, right? But to see the joy and excitement that came to her face, knowing that this is something that we we did together. And now it's bearing the fruit of our labor that her or at least one of our kids can enjoy, you know, it's just an incredible feeling that um, I don't think that there's anything else in this world that matches it.
0: So amazing. I thought you were going to end up saying that they never grew. And I was going to say, maybe it's because they know you don't love them.
1: (laughs) Well, see, I talk to the tomatoes too. I don't have anything against them. I just don't want to consume them. Right? Like, you know, it's like, I love you. I love the, you know, your presence. I think you're beautiful. Um, <laughs> I, I just don't. Want, I just don't want you to enter my body.
0: When it's safe to travel the world and escape the U.S. because people hopefully let us in, <laughs> I highly recommend going to the Middle East if you haven't before. I spend a lot of time in Tel Aviv, and I was anti tomatoes as well until I went there, and now. I can't get enough of them, but they taste like fruit in the Middle East.
1: I'll have to do that then. We can go on a
0: trip together. I'll meet you in Israel. Let's do it. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, yeah, I think it's just so cool that you've created this and you do this for your family and for yourself to take care of you and your well-being and your community. What does managing your anxiety look like in your life today?
1: Wow. Uh, Managing anxiety looks like a bunch of things depending on the day. I think my non-negotiable is my garden. I I start my day by checking on my plants, by talking to them, seeing how they're doing, checking and seeing what they need. And how can I be of service to them? Because, you know, because of their nutrients and sustenance, they've been incredible to me. Um, And I do that usually alone. You know, I'm in my garden a few times a day. But first thing in the morning, I'm, I'm out there alone. And I have three different gardening systems currently. I have a, a hydroponic garden that I'm just trying out. I have a container garden, you know, which was gifted to me. And then I have my traditional soil garden with five raised beds. So I'm, I'm outside every morning. Uh, after that, I come back in and I make myself and my wife, you know, a, a cup of tea. Tea has become our non-negotiable. We actually have a, a tea company that will be launching online. It's a wellness-centered tea company called Greenhouse Teas, and we'll be selling online at the end of summer 2020. And then after that, you know, it's taking 10 to 15 minutes, my wife and I to just breathe. Later on in the day, you know, we do mental health checks uh, with the family. We have nights where we read books together. Uh, Sometimes my wife and I just read. I I usually end up being the one reading to her. But uh, with the rest of the kids, we'll pick a book and we'll read, you know, a chapter a night. It looks like tucking my daughters in every night. Uh, reminding them that they're loved and supported. Those are the things where I feel fullest. And because of those things, you know, my anxiety is is able to stay at bay.
0: That sounds really special. Can I move in?
1: (laughs) (laughs) We we actually need a bigger house. We're in the the process right now looking for a new home. So uh, maybe. (laughs) Maybe.
0: So special. Really so special. And I saw your tea post the other day about your love of chamomile tea, and it made me want to dive in and have that same cup of tea at that moment. So I look forward <laughs> to doing and trying this tea company that you're building. Congrats on that.
1: Thank you so much.
0: Yeah. So shifting gears a little bit, in early June, you posted on Instagram, my experience in anti-racism comes from my lived experience as a black man in America. And you noted that you're not an anti-racism expert, but you are an expert on health and healing who's holding space for those fighting for an equitable America. Can you talk a little bit about what it's been like for yourself and to hold that space in the recent months?
1: Absolutely. It's it's interesting that you asked this question. It's a a great question. And it came up in a conversation I was having with a friend of mine yesterday because a, a few weeks ago, I ended up in the hospital because of a panic attack a very severe panic attack, mind you. And I think at some point I forgot my role in this fight, right? Everybody has a very specific role that they are designed to play uh, in life uh, in shifting and challenging and changing society. And I think because I, I am so impacted by the inequities that exist in this, in this country, the racism that exists, um, the systemic oppression that exists you know, I have every right to be angry. And I think I allowed myself to become too angry where I forgot my role. And my role is not to be the person on the front lines. Uh, My role is to be the person healing those that are on the front line. If you think of any war uh, that has been fought in this country or any other country, you, you had some people on the front lines that had guns, they had grenades, They had bombs. They had rocket launchers. They had bulletproof vests. They had on fatigue. They had on helmets. They had on all of these things. And when they got injured, you know, there were people in the in the barracks or back at camp or back at station, you know, that had the antibiotics and the uh, and the morphine and the stitches uh, and the band aids and the gauze, right? And each of those members, although they played a different role, each role was of equal value. Because without those individuals that had the gauze and the nursing jackets on and, and the ability to help heal, right, those on the front lines that were trained to be those types of soldiers, they would have been killed. They would have lost their lives. They wouldn't have had the ability to rest and recover and then fight again. And I think my role has always been to be that healer uh, because I understand the way mental health works. I understand the way the human body works. I understand, you know, health and wellness and well-being and how to create that and sustain that, my anger forced me to become a person that I wasn't trained to be, right? This doesn't mean that I can't sit back and have an intellectual conversation or a debate about blackness in this country or about race relations or about the oppression that black people have existed in you know, for generations, but to be one of those people on the front lines uh, trained you know, in combat, I am not one of those individuals. And I started to become that. And because I started to become that, It took over my body. It took over my mind. And essentially, it took over my life. And it landed me in a place that I'm all too familiar with that I never wanted to go back to. And so I had to remember what my role was in this fight and realize that in doing what I am doing, I am still offering a significant amount of value into changing and shifting this culture. But we cannot all fight the same fight the same way. We all have our roles. And when we play those, we actually have a higher chance of accomplishing what the goal is. And when we step outside of that right now, we're not providing where we're most valuable. Um, And so while I say I'm not an expert uh, because I am not trained to be in combat, I don't know legislation, right, which is what's going to ultimately help shift things. I don't know politics. I'm not aware of what's going on in the presidential election. Right. I know health. I know wellness. I know mindfulness. I know meditation. I know humanity. And and so I just really needed to get centered and play the role that I was designed to play.
0: It's incredible to have that awareness and be able to realize what role you could play and what value you could actually bring, as opposed to trying to do something that you knew you weren't qualified to do and didn't really want to serve as that role. Uh, my mom ran a holistic healthcare center that opened weeks before 9-11, and I've talked Mm. about it on the show before, where it really served as a relief center for people after 9-11, first responders, doctors, firefighters, police officers, and it was really powerful to be able to help and support during that time because everyone needs that, and it's just like caregivers, which we talk about a lot on the show of people who don't really get taken care of while going through, you know, someone else having a chronic illness that they take care of and how powerful it is and how important it is to nurture those people. So I remember when you put up the post saying that you checked yourself into the hospital and it was so powerful and so well-written, how did you decide when and how to publicly post that?
1: For me, it was, you know, it was a reminder to myself, but I needed it to be a reminder to everyone else too, right? That even in our fight, even in our expertise, we're still human beings, right? And if we're not taking care of ourselves, then there's no way we can take care of somebody else. I'm a firm believer in, in the idea that you can't bless from an empty well, you can only bless from your overflow. And if we're fighting a battle to shift and change culture and society and norms, then we have to be able to fight from an overflow. We can't fight this battle and expect to win when we're all tired and battered and bruised and exhausted. And so like, I I felt like I needed to be that reminder, right? You know, I needed to be that person that ran over the hill and got hit with a bunch of bullets and said, okay, it's fucked up over there. Like we need to readjust our strategy a little bit. And that's what it was for me, right? It's like, if if my experiences can serve uh, as a lesson for other people, then my experiences don't go in vain. And I truly believe that our individual experiences, they, they may be ours to experience. They're not ours to own. Right. And if we want to really shift and change anything, we have to be willing to be vulnerable and to be willing to share. And that's essentially all it was for me. It was like, I, I needed everybody that looks to me for support, you know, that looks to me for inspiration, that looks to me for whatever they may look to me for, you know, that I'm a human being too, and that I wasn't taking care of myself. And if it can happen to me, it can happen to you. So let this be a warning.
0: And what kind of response did you get in sharing that?
1: I, I mean, I got an overwhelming amount of support and love. And a lot of it, I felt like I had failed. And, you know, a lot of those messages and DMs and calls and text messages that took me days to get back to was just a reminder that, you know, I didn't fail and that my vulnerability did help. It did bring a level of awareness uh, it did help people to slow down a little bit and start to, you know, uh, readjust the way that they were showing up and looking at themselves and taking better care. So it definitely did exactly what I wanted it to do in that way uh, and just reminded me that my life and my purpose has value. Because sometimes when you, you know, live in a world and a society that's constantly telling you that your life doesn't matter, sometimes you can start to believe it. Um, and it was just a great reminder you know, of the opposite.
0: That's incredibly powerful. And it shows the power of social media in a positive way because there's so much crap out there that there's really people like yourself who are doing good for the world through their platform. So what's next for you? You mentioned the tea company launching at the end of the summer. What kind of things are you working on now?
1: Well, I mean, I'm, I'm still continuing to work on initiatives to fight against food insecurity. I want to be able to, to do whatever I can to make gardening as accessible as it possibly can be for everyone, especially those living in food deserts that don't have access to nutrient dense foods, um, I want to you know continue to push for a sustainable food system for everyone. So that's definitely at the forefront. And then the other side, like you mentioned, is you know the tea company. Uh, my wife and I are looking to launch by the end of the summer, and our teas are, are wellness centered. So you know my wife just discovered a tea blend that helps with seasonal allergies. I was a bit skeptical. She made it out of desperation because my allergies have been kicking my ass lately uh, and it worked better than clarity. And so since I've been drinking that tea every day, I have not had any issues with my allergies. And so, uh, you know, really just wanting to create some level of sustainability for our overall well-being with this tea company where it's like, you're not just drinking it because it tastes good because it does, but you're also drinking it for the chance to feel well consistently. Uh, I'm, I'm still working on my second book, um, which will be coming out hopefully next year. I'll have more information about that soon. I can't share too much of it right now. And then there's potential for me to put out a kid's book in the spring of 2021. So and then, you know, being a husband and being a father to five kids, which is a rewarding full time job in itself.
0: That's incredible. I'm excited to try this tea, especially this allergy focused one. Definitely something I'm dealing with lately. It's worse than ever before. And excited for these books that you're working on. So definitely keep us posted and share links with me as they come in. How can people learn more about you and follow you in your work?
1: The easiest way to connect with me is Instagram, honestly. Um, Quentin Vinny on Instagram. Also my website, QuentinVinny.com, where you know you'll have all kinds of updates coming from me and, and from my team. We just ran a uh, a fun promotion from uh, Instagram in conjunction with my website and was able to give away uh an herb garden, garden gardenuity herb garden container garden. Um, to one lucky winner. So we'll be doing a lot of like giveaways and and freebies. So definitely, you know, sign up for the newsletter and mailing list for courtinvenny.com. And then uh, greenhouseteas.com is where you'll get all of the information and updates for what's to come with the tea company.
0: Amazing. Thank you so much for taking the time to chat with me and doing the work that you do and leading by example. It means a lot.
1: Thank you so much for having me. I'm, I'm honored and privileged and sincerely grateful and thankful. So thank you.
0: Thanks for tuning in to Made Visible. We hope you learned about something new today. If you enjoyed this episode, please take a few minutes to subscribe, rate, and review the podcast on iTunes. We can't do any of this without your support. Visit madevisiblepodcast.com and follow Made Visible Podcast on Instagram. Special thanks to the team who made this possible. Elise Bonebright, the audio editor, Gemma Leghorn, the assistant producer, Dylan Chenfeld for the intro music, and Amanda Gracio for the design.